Clostridium difficile, or C. diff, is an overwhelming healthcare-associated infection in a number of ways. Most importantly, it overwhelms patients with terrible GI symptoms that can be deadly, especially among older patients. C. diff has also proven challenging to control, so long as one of the prime contributors, overuse of antibiotics and overuse of certain antibiotics remains very much in play. And then there are the multiple healthcare and community settings where patients with C. diff might go undetected and expose some others. Several new studies offer evidence for why more awareness, surveillance, and best practices are needed across the healthcare continuum, not just in hospitals and nursing homes. So do we have a handle on reducing and preventing C. diff? That's what we're going to ask our guests to help us parse on this edition of WIHI. And welcome to WIHI, an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. We do come to you biweekly, and also you can catch us later on IHI.org and on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan, and I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. Now, all is not bleak with C. diff by any means. We're going to hear about some encouraging trends and strategies in certain places, including an entire country. But we're also going to focus on why there are some persistent weak links in efforts to reduce C. diff and what would help bridge those gaps. So to introductions in just a moment, but first here's IHI's John Gothier. He's here with me in the studio with some reminders about how to make the most of your time with us on WIHI. John. All right. Thanks, Madge. Uh, just a few items to point out to help everybody make the most of today's program. On the right of the screen is our chat window. If you've tuned into WIHI before, you know about the great conversation that takes place in the chat. It's also where you can ask our panelists your questions, so make sure that your questions and comments are directed to all participants when Madge opens up the floor for questions. This allows our panelists and your colleagues on WebEx to see all the questions and comments being shared. Now, there are a few ways that folks have connected to WIHI today. If you're logged onto your computer and listening to the program by streaming audio coming through speakers or your headphones, you'll see a box in the top right-hand corner labeled Audio Broadcast. If you're on a less reliable internet connection today, we recommend calling in on the phone. If you experience any audio issues, please send a quick message to the host in the chat, but a simple solution to any audio hiccups may be to pause the WebEx audio player and then press play. If that problem persists, please let the folks at IHI Customer Service know. We have their number on the screen right now. Also, if you're hoping to get your hands on today's slide, I provided a direct download link in the chat. Tomorrow, they'll be posted at our archive over at IHI.org slash WIHI with today's chat and other helpful articles and resources mentioned by our guests. You can also email info at IHI.org, and we'll send them your way. And finally, we're always looking for ways to improve the listener experience here on WIHI, and we could use your help for that. Please take the time after our program to fill out a quick survey and let us know how we've done. Back to you, Madge. All right. Thanks, John. If you like to tweet... Thanks for including IHI's Twitter handle, at the IHI, in your comments, and that way we'll uh, enlarge who's part of the discussion. So some brief guest introductions. There's more information on our web pages about this today's show if you want more details. On the phone is Dale Girding. He's professor of medicine at Loyola University Chicago Stritch School of Medicine and research physician at the Edward Hines Jr. VA Hospital. He is an infectious diseases specialist and hospital hospital epidemiologist, and his research includes the epidemiology and prevention of C. diff. Welcome, Dale Girding. Thank you. 
Also on the phone, uh, by necessity, I suppose we could say, uh, Jason Leach is joining us uh, from the early evening in Scotland across the Atlantic. He is National Clinical Director for Healthcare Quality for the Scottish Government and was also just appointed as the National Clinical Director for Health and Social Care. Jason was also a 2005-2006 Quality Improvement Fellow at IHI, and it's always great to have you with us, Jason. Welcome. Hi. All right. And Alan Whippy is the Medical Director of Quality and Patient Safety for the Permanente Medical Group in Northern California. She provides leadership and strategy for quality and patient safety for the Permanente <coughs> Medical Group in connection, obviously, with Kaiser Permanente. Welcome, Alan. It's my pleasure to be here. All right. And here in the studio with me is Dr. Don Goldman. He's IHI's Chief Medical and Scientific Officer. An essential part of his work is to harvest, excuse me, harvest expertise, knowledge, and innovation from the field. And Don's impact is broadly felt, including as professor of immunology and infectious diseases and epidemiology at the Harvard School of Public Health. Welcome, Don. Thanks, Madge. All right, we're going to kick things off with Dale Girding. Um, I do want to remind any anyone who is joining by phone only that you can get all the elements of our show today. Uh, by emailing info at IHI.org. You'll also be able to download everything at the end of the show as well. So, Dale Girding, we're going to start with you, and I'm going to start off, or I'd like you to start off, with some clarification of the February 26 New England Journal of Medicine article that restated and increased CDC numbers of the burden of C. diff infection in the U.S. in 2011. Now, multiple media outlets ran away with headlines about the higher number of cases, but they also made some hay about findings that suggest more patients with C. diff need to be flagged in outpatient settings. So that is that a fair concern, Dale? And what's that overall picture we need to understand to have any reasonable discussion about this right now? Thanks again. Well, I, I think, uh, thank you. The the big uh, report finding uh, in the LESA paper in the New England Journal uh, was that the number of cases is higher than what had been anticipated before. Uh, for one of the first times, we've gotten some population-based data on C. diff rates in the United States, uh, a real first for us, uh, thanks to CDC and the Emerging Infections Program. And uh, it is true that about a third of those cases uh, where where it's called community, <clears throat> excuse me, community associated C diff infection, uh, but still about two thirds uh, uh, of them are are being found in healthcare institutions. The the thing that's quite different though is that only about a quarter of them now have onset in the hospital. So um, we're seeing another quarter or so that are having onset in nursing homes, and then uh, about an equal number are being picked up after discharge as community uh, associated but uh, community onset but healthcare associated so that these are people who get discharged from the hospital and are then diagnosed within 30 days uh, with C. diff and those are attributed then to the hospital stay and part of this is uh, a reflection of very short lengths of stay in general in hospitals now compared to Say 30 years ago, when I started doing C. diff work, 90% of all cases were hospital onset C. diff. So it, it is quite different now. But I think uh, the observation of the community cases is is worth going into a little bit because 
uh, CDC has made the point in a separate paper that even though these are community-associated, they probably should be called community-onset because so many of these patients have outpatient health care exposures, and uh, that has been estimated in the LESA paper at about 82%. So only 18% of these so-called community-associated patients did not have health care exposure. And you might ask, well, what is it about health care exposure that predisposes you to C. diff? There are two possibilities. I, I tend to favor one of them over the other. One is that say when you go to the doctor's office, you could be picking up C. diff spores in that environment. There are examples of that occurring, uh, or excuse me, they're not, there is no example of it being uh, documented that it occurs in that setting, but there are examples of positive cultures in those environments. However, I think the biggest risk of a healthcare exposure is that it increases the chance that you're going to be exposed to an antibiotic, and that exposure to an antibiotic then makes you susceptible potentially to C. difficile wherever you encounter it. And that can be just about anywhere in your environment, including soil, water, and many foods as well, although food uh, contamination is, is quite low level. There's one other confounding issue about the rates, and that is the changing diagnoses uh, in the United States. And and it turns out that uh, this has transitioned right around the time uh, of this publication, which is the 2011 data. And at that time, there was a, a shift over to the use of what's called NAT, nucleic acid amplification testing, or most people just call it PCR, for the detection of the toxin genes of C. diff. This is a much more sensitive diagnostic test and if that is being used as it was at about 52% of all hospitals in the study, it markedly increases the rates of C. difficile detection. And this New England Journal paper was based entirely upon diagnoses. There was no attempt made to try to determine if these patients really had diarrhea. So I think that's a potential confounding issue. Um, and there is a slide that shows um, what the rate of conversion of uh, these tests is in the VA environment. It's gone from, uh, uh, in 2010, a very low level up to over 50, well over 50% 50 by 2012. So this is right during the transition period. And I think what, what is happening is that although we're making good efforts to reduce CDF rates, particularly in healthcare, uh, at the same time, we're making more diagnoses, which is taking us in the opposite direction. But eventually, what will happen is we will saturate our diagnoses with the PCR testing. And I think at that point, then the effects of the better control of C. diff will start to show up. But it is a difficult period right now in which to try to sort out what exactly is going on. And when Final point is that uh, when you adjust for this new testing, uh, it does really affect uh, detection rates, and this has, again, been well-documented in, in the EIP sites uh, uh, because uh, some of the sites had extremely high rates, but when you adjusted for the use of uh, NAT testing particularly, uh, it leveled those rates off markedly. Uh, so I'll stop there and uh, 
be happy uh, to answer questions later. Perfect. Thank you so much, Dale. Appreciate for opening up uh, with uh, that, that framing. That's extremely helpful. All right, turning now to Alan um, out in uh, California. Now, we reached out to you and the Permanente Group and Kaiser Permanente because we were and are aware of very concerted work to reduce C. diff that has been effective. So um, it seems like your, the story at KP is illustrative of what can go well and why you really need to uh, stay vigilant uh, with this work. So uh, help us, uh, t tell us what's been going on at, at uh, KP. Thanks. Thank you. So the first slide you're going to see is um, a, a trend line of our hospital-acquired C. difficile rates over um, over the course of the last 10 years or so. And I have to say this is something we use for organizational learning um, because it's not it's not exactly what we um, have publicly reported. First of all, we report this as how, what percent of patients or how many patients in a thousand because it's just, we think it's a more meaningful way to see how many patients are harmed. In our effort to provide the safest possible care, we want to reduce the number of patients harmed and we don't use in our internal reporting the 10,000 day denominator. And secondly, we did an interesting thing um, when we switched from the old EIA testing to the PCR testing, um, which is actually the the second green line on this slide. We um, overlapped. We did the we did tested a thousand specimens with both tests, and um, and then we went back and reconfigured. We found that there was a 39% increase in detection rate when we switched to the PCR test. So we went back and adjusted prior results so that we would have a a sense of whether we were continuing to get better um, as an organization. So what you'll see when you look at this is that we um, had quite an increase in, in C. diff um, rates um, um, in the early 2000s and sort of peaked in 2008. We had huge variation year to year, month to month. Um, we decided we worked on a concerted region-wide effort to standardize, simplify, and align around um, improving outcomes in um, in uh, 2009, and then um, launched a region-wide program um, in early in 2010. So on the next slide, um, you'll see what that launch looked like. Um, it was pretty simple. Um, we we um, we had a C. difficile summit, which means that we brought together a wide array of leaders from each of our 21 hospitals, um, infection control specialists, infection disease specialists, hospital operational leaders, nursing side, physician side, EVS leaders, pharmacy leaders, and um, we presented to the group really standardized approaches um, to reducing C. difficile. We also put a lot of effort into um, creating a compelling story for change. So we brought in speakers from the UK. We brought in um, a surgeon who had acquired C. diff to tell his story. Um, and we also listed the names of everybody who acquired C. diff in one of our hospitals and died during that hospital stay. It may not have been the cause of death, but it certainly was an undesired um, effect. And so really trying to engage people in a change effort. And then we um, we put we had very specific expectations around team building and frontline ex uh, frontline engagement. 
We standardize isolation practices, um, signage, the PPE carts in front of every isolation room, uh, making sure that the equipment was always maintained and staffed, that making sure that C. diff isolation rooms had their dedicated computer, had a dedicated O2SAP monitor and other dedicated equipment. Um, we standardize cleaning, staffing, cleaning approaches, um, testing of cleaning with ATP, and we began a journey that we're just now getting close to completing to come up with a cleaning agent that was sporocidal with a short dwell time um, that we could use in every room so we didn't have different rules and, and, um, and uh, equipment for different rooms. And then um, we regionalized a um, antimicrobial um, stewardship program that um, from one of our hospitals to every hospital and have dedicated pharmacy and infectious disease resources to review and reduce the burden of antibiotics at every medical center. And then finally, we um, launched a hand hygiene social movement, um, knowing that you really could never do enough observations to make the change happen unless you created engagement amongst all the people who are on our units. And so that was all launched in the beginning um, at, the, at the point, that green line there. And you can see that there was a pretty significant reduction in um, C. difficile acquisition over the next year or two. Um, and then um, about a year after that, we launched um, a, an additional program of deliberate practices where we said, well, how is it exactly that you do a blood draw without in a C. diff room without contaminating your pen and then taking that to the next patient? What are the specific deliberate practices? How do you ambulate a patient in the hallway? How do you do um, uh, in-room radiology tests um, with, without, without um, breaking isolation? And we saw some further improvement over that next year or so. And then you can see that there's been a general trend um, that, it, that um, we have increased um, in the year or two after that. And that's a, I think that's an interesting story and it's something we spend a lot of um, effort trying to understand. One thing that is part of this, although it's hard to say what, um, to what extent, is that um, we recognized when we did case analyses that we often were not diagnosing and isolating patients early enough. And so we have moved that, that testing and isolation earlier and earlier in the stay, and we suspect um, that we are detecting more um, asymptomatic colonization, and that's part of what we're seeing here. But we know that, um, if you go on to the next slide, we know that um, that it's a really challenging um, thing for us to do at the organizational level, at the, at the regional level, in part because um, everyone is involved and every workflow is affected um, by this, and the harm is quite dissociated from any individual's actions. Um, and we have found as an organization it is sometimes difficult to have effective measurements that is tightly linked to the outcome. Um, and so, for instance, if you're going to do regional reporting on hand hygiene, it's very difficult to say what's the quality of that hand hygiene observation, was it in all shifts at all times, et cetera. Um, so, so that I think that that has hampered our ability to um, get to completely uniform um, performance and achieve the, the maximal levels of safety that we hope to achieve over time. And then finally, that's that, that question about sustaining um, unit leadership and frontline engagement and creating um, a culture of ownership, awareness, and speaking up. 
we did do safety attitude questionnaires um, in all of our hospitals and found that there was a pretty good correlation, statistically significant correlation between safety culture, um, speaking up, um, et cetera, with um, C. diff acquisition rates. And so we know where we continue to have, um, we have, where we continue to have variation in our ability to protect our patients, we know we have work to do um, to make sure that that is uh, present on every unit. And I think I'll stop there um, and take questions later. All right. Well, thank you very much. Uh, just the story just gets richer and uh, more interesting and um, appreciate the candor about uh, some of the challenges of sustaining gains and sort of looking at it in a very multi-level uh, manner. So that's a good moment. Thank you, Alana, and a good moment to turn to Don Goldman quickly. Um, and then Don will come back with some comments uh, after we also hear from Jason. But before we jump the pond, I want to give you a chance, Don, to reflect on what you've heard so far that might bear repeating or more, more food for thought that we can maybe take up in Q&A. Sure. Well, it's great to be on the phone with people who are really distinguished and accomplished in this area. And uh, just a reflection on what Dale had to say and then perhaps a question to him. Uh, you know, I, I think you've pointed out that the nursing home and the acute care hospital are areas where uh, amplification of C. diff occurs, both because of transmission of toxin-producing spores and organisms from patient to patient, and also because of the magnitude and intensity of antibiotic utilization. But this idea that people with our shortening hospital lengths of stays are now going home and then getting sick later is really important. And, and the rate of readmission, as I understand it, for people who experience C. diff that they originally acquired in the hospital is very high. So I appreciate your pointing out that that's a shifting uh, epidemiology of the pathogen. I do want to ask you about the occurrence of C. diff in people who have not uh, been associated with health care. Uh, or even those who may have been to see their primary care doctor, which must be a reasonably low-risk situation. There's still a large number who get C. diff, and we know that the exposure to antibiotics, at least in the United States, is just staggering. Uh, so if you could comment on that uh, problem of community-acquired C. diff and how much of a risk it is. And then for Alain, let's give both comments now, mm -hmm. and then maybe mm -hmm. we can have a response. Uh, there's quite a debate in the infection prevention community between those who advocate for so-called horizontal control where every patient is regarded as a potential uh, threat in terms of spreading an antibiotic-resistant organism or an other pathogen, and those who prefer a vertical approach saying that we need an MRSA program, we need a C. diff program. C. diff may pose some specific challenges around disinfection and hand hygiene, and if you could comment on how special that makes C. diff, that would be great. Okay, thanks. All right, here's how I'm going to divvy this up. Uh, I think what I'll do is, uh, Dale, why don't you quickly reply, if you don't mind, uh, just to so just to keep the flow going here and we don't lose uh, these important questions, to Don's uh, comment about the community-acquired piece. And, uh, Alain, let me, um, I may hold on Don's question for you, and we'll, we may open up Q&A with that one, okay? Okay. All right. Sounds good. All right. Uh, Dale? Yeah, I, I think uh, Don's question is uh, quite good, and uh, I have to say I don't know the answer for sure, 
But what I think is going on in the community is that there probably are antibiotic surrogates that are out there that are potentially doing the same thing to the normal microbiome that an antibiotic does. And perhaps one of the big uh, candidates for that is the proton pump inhibitor use, which is so widespread, particularly among elderly patients. But it's, a, it's difficult to sort this out. We, uh, we have tried, for example, in the laboratory to induce susceptibility to C. diff with proton pump inhibitors in hamsters who, who are very susceptible to C. diff. And we have not been able to do it with proton pump inhibitors. So it's possible that they are, by the way, uh, antibiotics. They have distinct uh, minimum inhibitory concentrations uh, against specific bacteria. So that it's potentially possible that they are acting on the normal microbiome, making people susceptible. But I suspect there are other things, other ways that we can become exposed to antimicrobials in the community and certainly there's no shortage of uh, likely exposure to C. diff in the community. It's a pretty ubiquitous organism. So answer your question, Don, is I don't know, but uh, I would suspect it's something to do with antimicrobial surrogates in the environment. Okay. Thank you very much, uh, Dale. All right. Uh, again, we'll hold on that uh, thought uh, that Don also had for Ellen. And Jason, let me turn to you. A uh, very compelling story of change uh, coming out of Scotland. Uh, and just tell us kind of what happened. There was a real wake-up call and uh, work got underway uh, that might have been going on at some level, but definitely uh, accelerated and moved differently. Um, so welcome again, and thanks, Jason. Thanks, Matt. So it, it, it's important early on, I think, to understand the context in which the Scottish work occurs. So Scotland is a publicly funded healthcare system. Scotland looks like you now see if you're if you're looking at the slides, that's what look, Scotland looks like from space. It is it is tartan from thirty thousand feet. And each of those little each of those different areas of tartan are health delivery systems. We have one healthcare system, no purchaser provider split. We control the money, we control the delivery we have no commissioning service. We have 14 delivery systems who actually provide the health care to the population, and they provide public health, primary care, secondary care, tertiary care, all in that geographical area. We have five million, just over 5 million people, and we have about 12 billion pounds to spend on that health care system. We have integrated delivery between primary and secondary care, and we've just uh, a week ago, actually, on the 1st of April, we've just moved to full health and social care integration, which is our big reform that we've been doing in the last little while. We are no, by no means perfect, and uh, we may come to some of the advantages and disadvantages of running a system in the way we have run it. But in 2007, in this hospital you see in Glasgow, Glasgow is our biggest city, 1.5 million people, it has lots of hospitals. This is the Vale of Leven Hospital, one of the smaller hospitals in the city. And we now know that over 30 people died in this hospital as a result of C. difficile infection. We knew that fairly early on in 2007-2008, and a number of things happened almost immediately. Now, when you look back about what happened, you can learn a great deal about the systems we put in place 
immediately and more recently. If you want to read the full story of the Vale of Leaven Hospital, then you need to read the the recent McLean inquiry. Lord McLean just published uh, in the last few months the full story of the Vale of Leaven Hospital and laid out a series of new recommendations that we need to follow in the next little while. But when you look at the story of our C. difficile reduction over this period, you see that we've done three batches of things. And for the quality improvers on the call, they'll recognize this model, the quality improvement guru called Joseph Duran, who came up with that theory that you needed quality planning, quality control, and quality improvement. And we have all three of these engaged in this program. We have an infrastructure, a quality planning infrastructure that includes performance management. It includes some high-level task force for the whole country. We have infection control nurses. It's the infrastructure by which we drive our change. We then have quality control, so we have inspection. We have scrutiny. We have had that veil of leaving inquiry. But then more importantly, and probably the thing that uh, sets us apart, I think, particularly at a country level, is what we've done in terms of quality improvement. In 2008, we launched the Scottish Patient Safety Programme, which aimed, amongst a number of other things, to reduce the C. difficile burden considerably. It also set out to reduce surgical mortality, hospital standardised mortality, all the other safety issues that people on this call would recognise. But inside that and alongside it, we have a huge amount of work around antibiotic prescribing. We have uh, an organisation inside the country, at centrally, at country level, deciding what antibiotics can be prescribed, when they can be prescribed, for what diseases they can be prescribed, led by an infectious diseases consultant called Dilip Nathwani from Dundee, who has led an enormous amount of work that is then spread through each of those health boards you saw. Each of those 14 health boards have antimicrobial prescribing committees. They have antimicrobial prescribing doctors and nurses who drive it. And you you see that our overall C. diff rate, so if you go back one slide, our C. diff rate across our over 65 cohort, our 15 to 64 and our 15 and over, are, has fallen by 82%. So if, if you remember, the Vale of Leaven incident occurs in 07, 08, in about a year, roughly, 9 to 12 months in 07, 08. And we begin to take this disease seriously at the beginning of 2008. And even the non-statisticians in the room could see that there is some improvement. The... The brief for this call was particularly to think about primary care. So uh, I asked our guys who have led this work what, what, they've, what they think the key elements are. And like, like all infectious disease experts, they, they go straight to antibiotics. And this is our national reduction in the 4C, the so-called 4C antibacterials in primary care. We, we don't think any other country has managed to achieve that at the scale we've managed to achieve it. That's across all of our 1,500 general practices, all of our 5 million people across the whole nation. That doesn't mean it's fixed. There's still a lot to do, and we may come to discuss shortly what, what else is planned, what else we need to do across the world. 
to help with this. But if you look at our overall bundle of things we've done, and I'm not an infectious diseases consultant, I'm not a CDF expert, I'm an oral surgeon, so this is not my area of expertise, but I do know that for my specialty, cephalosporins are now very difficult to prescribe. I can't prescribe them for oral infection the way I used to. But we've done a whole load of things. We've done hand washing, we've done cleaning, we've done, but principally, I think our biggest thing is our antibacterial reduction. And we've set ourselves aims, we've measured at a local level. So these big graphs are clearly only for the national picture. We have much smaller individual measurement inside wards, into community practices, and inside the health boards, I'm showing you. So, Matt, I think that's enough. Well, it's quite a, a dramatic change and a lot going on, and it looks as comprehensive as it needs to be. So thank you very much, uh, for Jason, for telling a multi-year story in five minutes or perhaps less. So before we go to uh, chat, um, and I want to thank everybody, uh, there are almost a 1,000 of you uh, joining us uh, live today for this program, so I really want to thank you for your interest in this topic, and I hope you'll tell others uh, that they can catch it in an archived edition. I see that several of you on the chat have gotten a discussion going of kind of the next frontier around treatments uh, and other, uh, I guess, cure or uh, prevention issues. And we did uh, ask Dale before we wrap up the hour, he'll talk a little bit about uh, that as well, some of the things he's tracking that he's intrigued by. Um, okay, so before we go to chat, I'm going to give uh, Don another opportunity here to reflect on uh, what he's heard. Then I'm going to go back to Alana around yeah, her question. Yeah, I don't want to lose that. Yeah, question. and I want you to repeat that question when when uh, and then we'll we'll go to chat. Yeah, I'm, okay. I'm going to uh, kind of bore in on some key issues that uh, I don't know if they're controversial, but they're they certainly make you think. And uh, Jason, your uh, results are really, really impressive, and uh, you attributed this at least in part to the national system you have with standardized guidelines and uh, considerable uh, emphasis from central authorities on uh, tackling this uh, problem. Uh, of course, it still comes down to implementation in the local uh, setting, and I'm wondering a couple of things. Uh, do you do audit and feedback at the individual uh, trust level, hospital level? And what has been the response for antibiotic utilization in the hospital? Because we established with Dale that this is the place where the real C. diff amplification and spread occurs and where the antibiotic administration is the most intensive. So if you could comment on that, local implementation, audit and feedback, and then uh, how the stewardship has worked in the hospital. I'll just say by reference the Dutch, for example, also have a national system for antibiotic stewardship and national guidelines. I've reviewed them in detail. And so if you could maybe even compare across nations, understanding that uh, maybe different diagnostics and tracking is going on. Okay. All right, Jason, does that seem like a fair enough question to answer, uh, even in, with some brevity? <laughs> uh, it does. So, yeah. the, so the, 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 it's relatively straightforward. Yes is the answer to the audit and feedback at local level, led by the Scottish Patient Safety Programme leadership and the antimicrobial stewardship groups that are local. There is individual contextualization of the national guideline. Nobody imposes that national guideline on anybody. 
that is the, the guidance set up by the experts in infectious diseases and those locally can adjust, can move a little bit around what they want to do and they feed data back both locally and nationally. I have a very similar graph to the one I just showed you in primary care for secondary care use, particularly for the C. diff antibiotics. The overall use of antibiotics, I have to say, we don't have such a dramatic reduction. So we still believe that antibiotics are being overused, as in all developed countries, but we're not seeing a rise. But I think the next space for us will be on getting the overall burden of antibiotics down, not just the C. diff-causing antibiotics. And we also have, a, have some work, uh, as, as one of my colleagues said on the call, we have some work on protein pump inhibitors because we think that's also becoming a problem, particularly in nursing homes and other community settings. As for what the Dutch have done, I, I know their system a little. I don't know what their C. diff results are from the top of my head but I know they have a system not dissimilar to us of national guidance, of national safety work, of implementation at a local level that we would recognize as something that, that we've done in Scotland. Okay, thank you very much. I'll just comment briefly that one of the things we ought to do uh, as uh, academics, researchers, and in infection preventions, I, I didn't expect, uh, Jason, that you'd know the Dutch data, but there are data from England, from uh, Holland, uh, Netherlands, from the U.S., and we always show our own data, and it would be really interesting to see what is the burden of C. diff in those, comparing those countries the way we do internationally for other quality metrics. Okay, that's absolutely fair. Maybe we'll be able to throw in some additional resources onto our resource page, <laughs> looking at Vicki here, <laughs> looking up. Uh, there's quite a bit on this. All right, I promise you, I love all the questions you guys are posing in the chat. Um, I love that you're also speaking to one another and answering each other's questions. Um, Don, could you re quickly repeat the question you had for Alan about horizontal, and then uh, I will will go go with the questions that yeah, are there. Sure. Just to cut to the chase, uh, is C. diff really special and unique, so that we need a vertical program for that, uh, given what it takes to uh, eliminate the spores, or, or can it be part of a horizontal uh, standard practice to reduce transmission of all resistant organisms. Thanks, Don. Alon? Yeah, so I, uh, so again, I'm not a, an emergency, I'm not an infectious disease specialist. We started our work with kind of an analysis of what are the biggest opportunities for harm in the hospital. What are those things that happen to people that um, are common and are really harmful? And then focused efforts on reducing those harms with this long-term goal to decrease hospital harm to the lowest possible level. And C. diff figures pretty prominently in that. Now, And we also use C. diff as kind of the poster child for all of the infection control things to make it more, um, more high. To, the work that we do for C. diff should help everything else. Um, so it was the poster child to get hand hygiene done. Um, so I think when you do C. diff, you, you 
it helps everything. There are some differences um, because of the spores and the fact that you can you can get infected five months later from a floor that's not clean. Um, it, and so it does require, you know, from our perspective, we've believed it's required more focus on environmental cleaning and equipment cleaning. Um, and and that that's kind of a highlight. The other thing that's a little tricky in antibiotic stewardship is that you sometimes those things to to decrease MDROs you will focus on anti-pseudomonals and double anaerobic coverage, and then sometimes you will step down to something that is more likely to cause C diff. And so I think there's been um, that interesting um, conflict that we're still learning about as an organization. Okay, thank you. Can I just real quick? <laughs> Well, this, I get to ask this I'm question gonna, hundreds I'm going to be times. the aggressive host uh, trust, here. Trust me, everybody in the chat seconds, is thinking about this. as they say, if Tom Ashbrook says. Dale, yeah. is it necessary to use uh, something other than an alcohol hand rub when you're dealing with a patient with C. diff because alcohol doesn't kill it so well? Right. That's actually a good segue. Thank you, Alan. And Don's right on top of this, and he's going to sit in my seat any day now. And um, John, I know people clearly have the hang of chat, but uh, just make sure, one, one reminder, about that. Yeah, of course. Yeah, of course. Just to make sure I wasn't muted. Uh, I want to make sure uh, that when you are asking your questions and comments um, that it's addressed to all participants down in the chat. See the send to bar? As long as it says all participants, everyone in the WebEx can hear and see what you're saying. All but right. only see. They can't hear it. Okay. <laughs> all right. Uh, thanks, John, and thanks, Don. Uh, thanks, Alan, for uh, that that final set of comments. And uh, Dale, we, we will turn to you for this first question. A couple of people have asked about it, which, uh, and I had been reading some literature ahead of the show uh, talking about these issues about proper hand hygiene and whether gels are not uh, effective around C. diff, um, soap and water better, and then there was another comment or in, in an article I read that said actually it's all about gloves uh, and not to get too hung up on hand gel or soap and water. W what would you say? Uh, well, we've been trying to answer that question in a study, and we still don't have the answer, but uh, I would uh, certainly uh, opt for your latter comment, which is if you wear gloves in, and it is required for isolated patients, uh, we probably don't have good evidence that there's a lot of contamination of your hands if you're following good practice in, in taking the gloves off. So it probably doesn't make a huge difference, but we have done studies in the laboratory seeding hands with C. diff uh, and then comparing the effect of alcohol and the effect of washing the hands, and there's no question that hand washing is more effective than alcohol. No question about it. So if you think you might have C. diff on your hands, hand washing is the thing to do. Whether you need to do that routinely, uh, I think, is uh, is still not clear, and uh, most national guidelines have said you don't need to do that except as a secondary intervention if you're having an outbreak or something like that. My own hospital uh, says wash your hands after you take your gloves off after leaving a, uh, a C. diff isolation room. Uh, many other hospitals have adapted that policy as well. And I, and I think uh, that hand transmission or healthcare worker transmission is probably the biggest factor in terms of horizontal transmission of C. diff in the institution, um, probably bigger than environmental. Some data on environmental improvements uh, suggest that there is a limit to how much you can lower C. diff rates by uh, cleaning up the environment, including using bleaches and 
ultraviolet light or other methods. So I think hand transmission is key, and I think gloves are, are clearly the best way to prevent transmission. That's an important point, Dale, that when you take off gloves, we know the contamination rate of hands is somewhere north of 17 18%. So uh, the gloves are great, but then you have to practice hand hygiene. Okay, thanks, Don. Right. Thanks, Dale. Um, why don't let me just ask uh, Dale quickly, and then um, maybe uh, Alain, you could weigh in as well. In terms of the antibiotic stewardship here, uh, somebody is asking which are uh, Jason. You had some that are very the, the four C's. Uh, uh, Alain, is, are these the same ones that you're targeting uh, for reduction, if not necessary, um, or are, do you look at it somewhat differently? Well, so um, I would say that um, we have tried to standardize our approach to antibiotics across the organization. We do that through order sets because we have common order sets um, for all of our hospitals, and all the antibiotic selections go through our infectious disease specialists. And so we have some ability to try to improve the way we use antibiotics outside of an antibiotic stewardship program. We did the same thing with PPIs and just took them out of the order sets and had a very dramatic reduction in PPIs. So that can be a very effective approach. But our antibiotic stewardship um, program has not necessarily been focused on those four areas, and we're constantly revisiting that um, to see if there's more opportunity. So we, our program tries to get people off of antibiotics to reduce the, the broad-spectrum antibiotics, um, to get people on oral antibiotics. So it's a broader program. Um, and not necessarily focused on these four, so it's very interesting the 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 wonderful success Scotland has seen with these four. Thank you. So, Matt, Go ahead, Jason. So it's probably important to say that I, I was limited to five minutes and a very strict brief. So I haven't told you the the broader story. The broader story is exactly as Alan suggests. It's about cleaning. It's about gloves. It's about hand washing after the gloves. It's about reducing five-day courses to three-day courses. So it, it, it is all of those things. But when asked what, what the research and the work seems to come down to is the most important thing is the reduction. For this disease, not for all the other harms we're causing, but for this harm, the most important thing is, is these four primary care and secondary care antibiotics. But that's by no means everything that's happened. Got it. Absolutely. And um, I, I totally appreciate it. And that's why I want people to ask questions. And that's also why we included our guests' email addresses and have started doing that with all our bio slides. So if you do want to ask uh, some questions that we can't uh, get to in our hour, uh, you'll do so. A lot to talk about. Very rich. Dale, I want to bring you in here uh, very quickly on this antibiotic stewardship and just ask what... How, how you frame this issue right now in terms of, you know, levers uh, that are necessary uh, in this area. And I know you wanted to point us to a new article that had just come out in, um, I think, in Nijim, again, the New England Journal on community-acquired pneumonia uh, and whether there's an opportunity there. Uh, yeah. The um, problem you have if you are trying to do antimicrobial stewardship for control of C. diff may uh, butt heads with some of the recommendations for other treatments of infection, including community-acquired pneumonia, where both fluoroquinolones uh, and upper-level cephalosporins, second, third, fourth generation, are often recommended. 
And um, as a result, uh, you may find that uh, you're violating your guidelines for how you manage community-acquired ammonia in your hospital if you're trying to avoid drugs that are associated with C. diff. So we would uh, include not only ciprofloxacin, as Jason has done, but all fluoroquinolones in the list of, of agents that should be reduced in usage to prevent C. diff, largely because of this NAP1 strain, which has acquired very high-level uh, fluoroquinolone resistance. All C. diff is resistant to cephalosporins, so that's a good class that is commonly used that really needs to be focused on in control of C. diff. And clindamycin is little used these days, uh, more so in the community now because of MRSA, but much less than in the hospital, but is still one of the most high-risk drugs that can be used for uh, C. diff infection. We don't have coamoxiclaz in the U.S. as an intravenous drug. We have uh, ampicillin-sobactam, and we have um, uh, clavulanic acid as an oral agent. So uh, I'm, I've not seen ampicillin-sobactam targeted specifically in the U.S. as an anti-C. diff antibiotic to control, but certainly cephalosporins, all fluoroquinolones, and clindamycin would be on that target set. The paper you're referring to uh, showed that you can use uh, uh, amoxicillin or amoxicillin clavulanic acid uh, and not have any different outcome in treating pneumonia compared to regimens that contain fluoroquinolones or uh, cephalosporin. So I, I think that was the, uh, the gist of the paper. And so it might make it easier to convince clinicians if you want to put in a C. diff stewardship program that it is okay to treat with, uh, say, amoxicillin for community-acquired pneumonia rather than have to use a fluoroquinolone or a cephalosporin. So I think that's basically the bottom line on that. What is the, uh, thank you, Dale, what is, um, I guess, the strength of the evidence that raises concern about uh, proton pump inhibitors and older adults? Um, the data are largely um, on large database sets. Um, not all of them show a relationship, but it has been so commonly associated now that I, I think most people believe there is some relation of proton pump inhibitors uh, to increase C. diff risk. At first, it was thought that it could be mediated by reduction in acid, uh, but in fact, uh, spores of C. diff, which we think is the most common transmission vehicle, are completely resistant to acid, so they can go right through the stomach in the presence of acid and it doesn't affect them. But the antibiotic activity of proton pump inhibitors may alter the microbiome, and it may alter it more in elderly patients than it does in, say, younger patients, but the elderly are the ones largely taking PPIs. And as a result, uh, they may be acting in some settings like an antibiotic, Certainly there's some data that suggests that when you put an antibiotic together with a PPI, that that may be a worse combination as well. So I think we just need more research on this, and um, I'm, I'm waiting until we have available something called non-toxigenic C. diff, uh, and then we'll be able to test whether proton pump inhibitors will enable that organism to colonize patients or not. And if, if, it, if it does, then we would... Uh, have evidence that, that proton pump inhibitors are affecting 
the colonization resistance of the normal microbiota. There are also, thank you, Dale. Um, I don't know if I should uh, keep uh, leaning on you or if anyone else wants to jump in. Atlanta. Several people are asking about um, probiotics, and uh, that actually came up with, uh, from uh, somebody who couldn't even join the show today live. Um, what to say about probiotics in this uh, topic right now? Uh, Alana, is, is, am I putting you on the spot with that one? Um, so, I, you know, I, I probably am not the right person to go to with that question. Okay, we are working on treatment with, um, you know, treatment programs, but we haven't adopted probiotics. Okay. Um, Jason, is that something that's in play at all in Scotland, or I'll go back to Dale or Don? That's fine. I... I'm tempted to answer in a completely incoherent and uneducated way, but I think Dale and Don are probably your best. <laughs> well, thank you for resisting the urge. Don, Don, do you want to? I think Dale already. All right, we'll go to Dale. Okay, Dale. I have a okay, comment. Well, so, so everybody's passing that one off. Okay. Yeah, right. Uh, I'll, I'll take it on. I, I, um, I think we still don't have good data for probiotic use. The problem is it's a... You know, when you say probiotics, you are covering just a huge number of different microorganisms that might be administered, and we don't have really solid data uh, that you can prevent C. diff with the use of probiotics, and we certainly don't have data that probiotics are helpful for treatment. If anything, they would have to be a preventive strategy. The biggest control trial published to date, done in England, uh, 1,500 patients in each arm uh, did not show a benefit uh, of taking a probiotic. And the study, of course, is criticized because the first thing everybody would say is, well, you used the wrong probiotic, and you can say that forever, basically. Uh, the other criticism was that the rates of C. diff in the uh, control population were fairly low, so there wasn't an opportunity to really lower it that much, but it, it was not statistically significant. It wasn't significant even in reducing antibiotic-associated diarrhea. There are other studies that show a significant reduction. They have been criticized because of the very high rates of C. diff, extraordinary rates in the control groups, 17%, uh, 20%, that just don't seem realistic. And as a result, uh, the credibility of those trials also is up in the air. So I think we need better data. What we probably need are better organisms, and most of these probiotics have been derived from dairy sources. I think what we need are some probiotics that we derive from the microbiome itself that might actually colonize patients and, and produce a much more effective preventive strategy. Thanks, Dale. Yeah, so uh, just a couple comments, Matt, briefly. Uh, one of the things that I'm concerned about is the, our, our relative failure to coordinate all of our actions against harms and especially infections. I was just interviewed about the coordination of uh, HHS uh, efforts in the United States on infections. So here we have, Gail, Dale has brought up a really good example. We had a target in this country to reduce the time bef uh, to patients getting antibiotics for pneumonia in the emergency department. I can't remember if it was four or six hours. There was a massive increase in the use of antibiotics due to overdiagnosis of pneumonia so that box could be checked. And the predictable outcome of that is a risk of uh, infection with uh, C. diff. 
similarly, we have a ventilator pneumonia or ventilator complication bundle that, when it originally came out, included uh, antacid treatment with proton pump inhibitors and other agents, which not only may in increase the risk of C. diff, but is pretty well known to increase the risk of nosocomial and community-acquired pneumonia. So people need to start getting together and thinking about the whole spectrum. Uh, if we're going to have antibiotic stewardship, what's the total picture we're trying to deal with? Not on a MRSA, C. diff, one-by-one one basis. I don't think that's going to get us where we need to be. Okay. I uh, thank you on that. I want to also just acknowledge in the chat people have a lot of wonderful, um, very specific questions. And um, I, again, I want to remind you that each of our guests does also have an email address that they'd be happy to uh, add some further things. I'm going to put one more general question out here, and that just is sort of a risk assessment. There was sort of some interest in early detection, earlier and earlier detection, and any kind of risk assessment tools. And maybe, Alain, I'll, I'll ask you about that. Um, and I think several people have, you, you might see in the chat that some people are curious if there are any uh, tools that you use in, um, as part of your efforts that um, you might be able to share, but we'll talk with you about that afterwards. Thanks. Um, so I, I don't think we do have um, a risk assessment. I think we try to limit antibiotics and provide, you know, a, a sanitized environment for every member and clean hands for every every patient who's in the hospital. So I, I, that hasn't been a big part of our program. I'm interested to hear from the others. Okay. All right. Any uh, kind of risk? Somebody had asked about, you know, be, being able to use something that risk factors, age, uh, whether you've used proton pump inhibitors, antibiotic recently, recent hospitalization, nursing home stay. Um, so it would be some kind of uh, a way to sort of take a, that you would, ima you would imagine that a, this would come up as part of a patient uh, inquiry uh, for any intake. But I don't know, Don, thoughts on that, no. whether that would be effective or? Uh, just as a general uh, yeah. observation, I'm always thinking about what is a patient experience coming into a hospital at the point of care and how can all of the things we need to do to keep them safe be integrated. Uh, you know, we can't have a C. diff nurse, a pressure ulcer nurse, a VTE nurse. Uh, we can't have all these programs running around when the patient presents as a whole person. So just in general, as you can probably tell from what I'm saying, I, I like to think in an integrated fashion and then add whatever special tweaks we need for special things like how do you disinfect the environment for a patient with C. diff. Okay, thank you very much. All right, Don, uh, I want to say to you just for time purposes that we're going to call those your final words on the show today, and I'm so glad you were part of uh, helping me uh, design the program and, and could be with us today. Uh, I'm going to uh, go to Alan and Jason and then Dale, because, Dale, I want to give you the last word on some uh, people got very uh, buzzy on the chat about uh, fecal transplants and other kinds of things that might be on the horizon, but maybe I'll start with Alan. Some just final thoughts. Sure. So I think um, there's been a lot of discussion um, in the recent articles saying that there is probably not enough evidence out there um, to help guide us as to what um, what we should and could be doing to improve outcomes. And so we're sharing best practices at this point. 
And I just want to make the point that um, we're on the same learning um, journey that everyone else is, but just um, doing the commonly accepted things uncommonly well has a profound effect on, on outcomes, and getting engaged in the journey and learning from, another, from one another is a huge part of it. And even though um, we feel we have lots more to do, we can count over 5,000 patients who didn't acquire C. diff in our hospitals because of work we've done. Um, and um, I, I hope to say that we'll be much better a year from now and two years later. I'm so glad you could be part of our program today. Uh, it's been a real pleasure to engage with you about this work, and we'll, we'll come back to it. So thank you again, uh, Dr. Um, Alan Whippy. Uh, Jason, some final thoughts uh, f from you. So I, I agree with uh, much of what's been said around the integration of harm assessment and treatment and prevention, and C. diff is only part of that in Scotland. I've, I've, I've uh, typed into the chat box, and John has through the very specific infection stuff that we have in Scotland, and people are very welcome to steal it, adapt it, and use it. It comes from our Health Protection Scotland website. So if we can be of any help in Scotland, we're very happy to do that, and we continue to learn from others around the world. Well, we learned from you, Jason, and many countries, and we're so grateful uh, for the work and uh, the difference you've made, As uh, and thank you for uh, being able to share it on the program, and thanks for giving up some of your evening time to be with us. Um, all right, Dale, I, I know we're kind of at the top of the hour, but what, what's some of the stuff you're finding kind of exciting or promising uh, that we should be paying attention to going forward in this field? are on the horizon, including vaccines against uh, C. difficile toxins, which I think eventually uh, will make their way into the uh, uh, approved category. In addition, there's monoclonal antibodies being developed uh, also, uh, which should target the toxins of C. diff. Those will be available soon. And uh, on the subject of uh, FMT, the uh, derivatives of FMT, in other words, uh, specific categories of organisms that uh, are effective in preventing further C. diff infection. Currently, that's being done for multiple recurrence, but it could also be done for what's called primary prevention, in other words, preventing high-risk patients from getting C. diff in the first place. But I think we'll see subsets of organisms. Uh, what I'm working on is something called non-toxigenic C. diff, and uh, it also, if you give it to patients uh, and get them colonized, will prevent them from having further uh, toxigenic C. diff infection. So all these things are under development. Very uh, interesting and rapidly moving field right now. Probably the most interesting being the manipulation of the microbiome and various uh, constituents of the fecal transplants that are going to be I'm sure much more effective than a fecal transplant himself and be able to be given orally, which will streamline that whole process. So uh, thanks very much for having me. Boy, we're so thrilled that we caught up with you, Dale Gerding, and thank you so much for being part of the program today. I want to also thank the very vibrant audience, all your questions. Everything gets posted to IHI.org uh, by tomorrow. It's a link right on the archive page. You can find it right off the homepage, and we'll have it all there by noon tomorrow. You can also, you're, you'll be prompted when you get off the WebEx to 
today if you want to download some of the elements we shared. But again, that chat will be there tomorrow. Next up on WIHI, April 23rd, we're going to be talking about reducing risks and defects in real time with help from the front lines. And uh, you can find out how to enroll in that right on the website right now. Um, again, check out the archive page. If you need to speak to somebody immediately about any of this, you can email info at IHI.org. Jane Rossner will post <coughs> some thoughts, uh, what she heard on today's show on IHI's Facebook page, and uh, we'll look out for your tweets as well. The people who help make WIHI possible, and what a team they are, are John Gothier, Matt Morris, Jameson Case, Vicki Minden, Jesse McCall, Jane Rossner, Val Weber, Mario Bello, and Ruth James. And it's my privilege to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving health and patient care most of all. Today was a great example of that. For the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, I'm Madge Kaplan. Thanks, everyone. Uh, really interesting discussion. We'll continue with it. Good day.